Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, as we continue our study of the book of Romans. We're going to deal with the first 13 verses of the passage this morning and uh, try to glean from this passage what the Lord would have us to, to learn. And I'm, I've entitled the message, uh, Serving God Together. Serving God Together. Romans chapter 15, following your Bibles as we read. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves, but let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Jesus Christ, or to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again Isaiah said, There, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that, shall rise, he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the privilege of being a part of a local church. We thank you, Lord, for your plan that includes the local church. And I know that when Jesus was here, he said, I will build my church. And he's been doing that. Lord, you've been doing that ever since. And we thank you that we're a part of that. We know you have a purpose for the local church, and I ask, Lord, that you might help us to realize that today, that if we're going to be what God wants us to be, we must work together, and we must make that a priority to work together and not to be divided. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray you give enablement to bring it today, and I pray that if there's someone here today who has never trusted Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation for them. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord is doing his work today through the local church. Bodies of believers who believe the Bible and stand for the truth have been and will be used of God to do his work in this, in this time. The devil knows this, and because he knows this, he will do everything he can to defeat the local church. I think it interesting that throughout the years at least I've been living, that... Uh, Sometimes you hear of church splits, and it's very rare that you hear of a church split in a liberal church, a church that no longer preaches against sin, a church that no longer uh, holds the, the, the doctrines of the Word of God strictly, no longer are fundamental in, the Bible, in Bible believing, but they've drifted off into liberalism, and they accept all kinds of things. 
It's very rare that you hear of a church split in a church like that. But it's unfortunate that you do hear of church splits among Baptists and other Bible-believing, Bible-believing people. And we wonder, why is that? I think the reason is, or at least one of the reasons, is that if, if other churches have departed from the Word of God, they're accepting things such as homosexuality, and they're just not, don't speak up too much about abortion, and they accept sin, they don't preach against sin, the devil already has them, and they're not a threat to him. Because if he can get people to be religious, but they're still not saved, that's all right with him. He likes religious people. But if he knows a church is doing the work of God, and they're preaching the word of God, and they're standing for the word of God, and they're living the word of God, and they're reaching other people for Christ, that's the church the devil wants to get in and divide and do all he can to cancel their work. And so the devil is, is in the business of breaking up local churches. He will introduce false teaching in the church. He will tempt the pastor and try to get him to fall so that he'll use his, lose his effectiveness. He will attack the members and get them to sin and compromise their walk with God so that other people outside the church won't take them seriously. He will try to get the church sidetracked on trivial pursuits, such as we saw in chapter, 13, in chapter 14. People arguing about diet and about days and things like that, which really made no, uh, no, had no really significant uh, impact on the work of God. Those uh, things were things that Scripture didn't really speak about, and yet people were making those a priority, and they were dividing and arguing about it. The devil loves to get churches to do that. He will disrupt the missionary outreach of the church because he doesn't want missionaries going out and spreading the gospel uh, around the world. Yes, he may have many tactics, many tactics the devil will use, but I think his favorite tactic is to get people in the church, even though they might believe uh, the doctrines right, they might have it right on, on, on the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, and salvation through faith in Christ, and and uh, all those things, they might have that right, but they don't get along. And they argue and they bicker back and forth. We haven't had that problem here, but I have known the churches, uh, churches that did. I've experienced some of it, but I've seen a lot of it in other churches. And uh, pastors have told me about it and how that they have uh, people just uh, bickering about silly things in the church. Well, that's the devil's tactic, he, tactic and he loves to do that. He knows that the unity of the brethren is a very important thing. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. God said that. The devil knows he said that. And the devil is against anything God is for. And so he'll attack the unity of the church. And there's, there's nothing more unpleasant, really, for a Bible believer to be in the midst of a church that's supposed to be living for Jesus, and yet people come in and they're bickering back and forth and they're talking about each other. That's very unpleasant to be a part of that, that kind of thing. In the passage before us this morning, God gives us some things we can do to ensure that our church remains united and serving the Lord together. As we examine this passage, it's important that we remember that what Paul has already said about the Roman church to whom he's writing. And that's chapter 14. We've already alluded to that. And that is, they were bickering and, and criticizing each other because of meats, 
the diet, and because of days. And uh, because of that, he's reminding them it's very important for you to work together and to be what God wants you to be. Because of their differing backgrounds, they had differing opinions, and the same is true of us today. All of us have differing backgrounds. We have differing opinions on certain things. But there are certain things that are just not that important. And we should not allow the devil to come in and uh, break us up or uh, cause us to be against each other because of that. And so the Lord gives us uh, some things in this passage that Paul wants the church to emphasize so that they not, might not be used of the devil uh, when, he, when he comes and tries to break them up and discourage them. So the problem's already there of Gentiles and Jews uh, criticizing each other over, over diet and days. But he says, now here's the way you should, should live. So I'm going to break the passage down in three things. First of all, the Christian who's a part of God's local church, the person who truly believes in the Lord, if he wants to keep uh, things down in the church from disrupting the order of the church and, and disrupting the mission of the church, if he wants to keep the devil from coming in and tearing us apart, then we need to do these three things. We, first of all, we need to show God's heart. We need to show God's heart. Oh, how we need that today. We need to show God's heart. We need to demonstrate God's heart and what he's like and who, who he is. You see, it's important to be right on doctrine. That's important. But sometimes we can be right on doctrine, as we've said, but wrong on togetherness. And so we must be careful about that. We must make sure that we're right on the right things, that we emphasize the right things. I remember a story that was told me many years ago in West Virginia. I heard of this Methodist pastor who was retired. He was a black man, and uh, people spoke very highly of him. And I said, I'd like to meet that man. And so he was a resident of a rest home there in uh, close to Lewisburg, West Virginia. So I went to see him. His name was Brother Johnson, and he was a retired Methodist pastor. We had such a good time talking. And he was of the old persuasion, you know, the Bible was true and, you, could, and they, you should preach against sin and all those things. And he said, my denomination right now is not, doing, is not believing what I believed all my life. And they're not practicing that. And he was upset about that. And then he told me a joke or a story. <laughs> he said, uh, there was this uh, black preacher in this community and he had been there a long time, worked with his local church, and was a godly man, and people knew him, knew him, and he was respected. But he was also the best fisherman in the community. And he said there came to this town another preacher, and uh, he was of another denomination. And he came into this town, and he was a learned man. He had been to school. You know, he knew all the, all the doctrines and all that. And, and it was an upscale church and all that. But this man also liked to fish. And he heard that there was a guy in the, in the community that was the best fisherman, and he was, a Baptist, but he was a Methodist preacher. And he said, I'd like to go fishing with that guy. Maybe he can give me some pointers of where to catch fish. And so they arranged a meeting, and the black pastor took him fishing. This fisherman was learning from the black pastor, and he felt a little bit, you know, it shouldn't be this way. I'm the learned guy, and I'm the guy that's got the big church, and I'm the important guy, and, and this humble black preacher is teaching me how to fish. So he was offsetting that by asking the preacher questions. And he said to the preacher, he said, uh, he said uh, 
uh, sir, he said, uh, have you studied homiletics? And uh, the preacher scratched his head and he said, homiletics, I don't think I know what that is. And he said, you need that. They fished a little bit longer and he got a little more clues from the black pastor, you know, how to catch fish. And he said, uh, a preacher, he said, do you know hermeneutics? He said, hermeneutics? I don't know what that is. Now, homiletics is teaching you how to, pre- how to present a message. Hermeneutics is teaching you how to study the scripture, really. And uh, so he said, do you know that? He said, uh, I don't think I know that. And he said, he fished a little bit longer, and he said, do you know ecclesiology? That's the study of the church. And he said, no, I'm sorry, I- I've never studied that. Fished a little bit longer, and he said, uh, do you know eschatology? And uh, he said, no, listen, I'm sorry, but I've never, I've never studied those subjects. And about that time, the other preacher, the sophisticated preacher, hooked a fish. And he stood up in the boat to catch that fish and reel it in. And in his excitement, he tripped and fell over the side of the boat. And he was floundering in the water. And the black preacher hollered out to him says, Sir, do you know how to swim? And he said, no. And he said, you need that. (laughs) So he sort of got even with him, you know. He knew all these things, but the thing that was most important that time, he didn't know. Sometimes we can be that way. We can have the learning, but really the important thing in getting along with each other, we haven't learned. And so God, God tells us in this passage that we need to show God's heart as we work together. He says it in verse 1. He says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not please ourselves. We then that are strong, that means thus who, who are convinced in Bible doctrine and we know it's, you know, it's okay to eat meat and uh, this other guy says, oh, I, I wouldn't eat that meat that's been offered to an idol or some other thing. Or maybe a Jew says, I wouldn't eat that meat because it's pork or it's, it's uh, a, a fish of some kind I shouldn't eat. And, and uh, he says... We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Bear doesn't mean forbear. It means to carry the burden. We ought to bear the infirmity of the weak. That means we should be sympathetic to them, not be down on them, not uh, talk down on them, not try to correct them all the time, to understand that uh, they're coming from a different point of view and their background is a bit different than mine. And rather than me criticize this person who maybe doesn't know as much, I should bear their burden and should be a help to them and a strength to them and not look down to them. And so he says, bear ye one another's burdens or bear the infirmities of the weak. And then he says, don't please yourselves, but please others. In verse, verse, two, he, or verse 1, he says that, last part of the verse, and not to please ourselves. But then he says in verse 2, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good edification. Edification is building up. And so a member of your church, uh, you're to to not set out to please yourself and always get your way or always have it it for you, but you should set out to please others. And so let us, everyone, please his neighbor for his good and for his edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, as is written, the reproaches of them that that reproach thee fell on me. So we're to show, show God, show God's heart. 
as we work with each other, we're to show God's heart. And that means we're not to set out to please ourselves. And so many church splits, I've seen it in the past, uh, and uh, some people get upset about some particular thing, and, and they'll leave this church and go to another church, and it's all over just frivolous things. It's not really that important. And he says, we shouldn't do that. We should uh, please one another because the Lord did that for us. I mean, did the Lord deserve to have your sins placed on him on the cross of Calvary? No, he didn't deserve it. He was sinless. Did the Lord have a right to judge you right away for your sin? Yes, he did. But he said, I came not to judge. I came to die for their sins. And so Jesus on the cross of Calvary took our place and he died for us. And he was our example that we shouldn't always be standing up for ourselves, but we should please one another and sort of take the second, the, the second seat and please one another. We should choose to imitate Christ because that's the way he did. For whatsoever things were written aforetime and were written for your learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so the Lord wants us to be like Jesus was. You see, Jesus, when he was in Gethsemane, what did he say? He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said this, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. As a man, he was the God-man, but as a man, he was experiencing this. He knew that soon the cup of God's wrath was going to be poured down on him. He was going to take all of our sin upon himself. He was going to be judged for us. And he knew how bad your sin was and how bad mine is. And he knew all those things. And that you magnify that by all the sin of the whole world. And Jesus, contemplating that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said this, Nevertheless, not my will. I'm not here to please myself. Not my will, but thine be done. And how many problems we could avoid if we just realized that we're not the number one person. <laughs> How many problems we could avoid if we realize that the things we're trying to stand up for for ourselves are not that important. And the Lord wants us to give in to one another and, and to please one another in the sense that we, we try to get them to uh, be strengthened and be edified. And so we're to choose to imitate Christ. The scripture tells us that that will bring us hope. If we truly do that, if we were willing to do that, that means we, have, we experience the hope of the Lord. That is, God has promised to give us wonderful things. And we can be second fiddle, so, so to speak, for a while because the day is coming when we're going to be with Jesus, we're going to have a brand new body, we're going to be sinless, and all these things that we would argue about are not really that important. It's all about Jesus. And so we, we look forward to that hope that we have with him. Also, verse 5 says, would it be like-minded one to another? Now, the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Jesus Christ, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're to be like-minded. As God is minded, so we're to be minded. God is patient, and so we're to be patient. God is a God of consolation. So we're to be a God of con a person of consolation. Consolation means comfort. And so we're to be people who are patient with one another, and we're to be people who comfort one another and to look out for their needs, not all the time looking out for our own, and we're, we're doing this because we love Jesus. Also, he says 
that if we show God's heart, we're going to receive one another. Look at verse 7. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, if somebody comes into our church and maybe they're not quite as well-dressed or learned or whatever it might be as you are, our tendency is to sort of look down. Our tendency is to, oh, they'll be all right, you know. And we don't really reach out to help them and to encourage them. That's our tendency. But the Lord says we should receive one another. Why should we receive one another? Christ received us. Now look at yourself. I mean, honestly, everybody look at yourself and ask this question. Do I deserve to spend eternity in heaven? Walk on golden streets, live in those mansions that God's prepared. Do I deserve that? Do I deserve to rule and reign with him for 1,000 years? And the answer is no. But the Lord took you, an, a sinner, and he saved you by his grace, and he received you. He received you into his family. He received you as a child of God. And for us not to receive someone else is wrong. And God will, use, God will, will want us to, if someone comes in that maybe is a little different than we are, we're to reach out and we're to be helpful and encouraging to them. If they haven't come as far along as we are in knowledge of the scripture, that's okay. It took us a while too. So we reach down and help them and encourage them, do all that we can to bring them in, and we receive them. We don't shove them aside. And so the Lord wants us to receive one another. He illustrates in this passage how Jesus did that. Look at verse, uh, verse 8. He says, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. That's the circumcision is the Jew. Jesus Christ ministered to the Jew. And so, well, we'd expect that, that he was a Jew, and so he ministered to the Jews. But then he goes on and uses several verses to say that also he ministered to the Gentiles. Look at verse 9. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And verse 11, again, Praise the Lord all ye Gentiles, and laud him all ye people. Verse 12, and again Isaiah said, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. So he's mentioning the Gentiles. So who's Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who came to, from heaven to this earth, and he receives Jews and he receives Gentiles. Now, that last part we should be very glad about because I don't think there's anybody here that's a Jew. If you are, that's great. But I doubt if anyone here is a Jew. But uh, most of us are Gentiles, if not all of us. And the Lord received us. I remember the day he received me. I'll never forget it. <laughs> The joy that flooded my heart when I realized that God saved a lost sinner. And uh, that was wonderful. Well, he received me and he received you. You remember those time, that time as well when the Lord received you. And it's a wonderful thing to experience. Well, when somebody comes in, they need Jesus. How should we treat them? We should receive them because the Lord received us. And we should try to minister to them and help them and lift them up and, and not look down on them but be a, a blessing to them. Because someday we're going to spend eternity with that person 
who's trusted Jesus and maybe they don't have the same background we do. Maybe they're not as refined as we are or whatever it might be. You're going to spend eternity with them. And guess what? When you get to heaven, what they're going to be like, they're going to be just like you are. They're going to have a brand new body. They'll be perfect. They'll be refined because all God's children, uh, when we get to heaven, we're going to be perfect. And that means we'll be refined. We'll act like we're supposed to act. All of us will act like we're supposed to act in heaven. All of us will be the same. It'll be all, all the same in heaven. We'll all be like Jesus. And so there's differences, I believe, in the way we'll look and all that. But we'll be in the, sa- the same in that we'll be like Jesus. We'll be perfect. And so someday that's coming. So the Lord's saying, while we're here, why don't you do that now? Why don't you receive one another? Why don't you help one another? Because when you do that, you're showing the heart of God. So that's the first thing, show God's heart. The second thing is this, and that is seek God's honor. Look at verse 6. That ye may with one, one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Seek God's honor. Our desire is to be like Jesus and to show his heart but our desire is also to bring glory to him. The actions of many Christians throughout church history who have been a part of division in a local church, I'll guarantee you that it does not glorify God. It doesn't. It does not glorify God when somebody comes into a church and tries to tear that church apart by spreading gossip or talking about one another or or being a part of a clique or something like that, that in no wise glorifies God. And so our desire should be that we should should seek God's glory. Look at verse 7. Wherefore receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. We're to act this way to each other, show God's heart for God's glory. You see, when you show your heart and the way you really are, because all of us have imperfections, that doesn't bring God glory. But when we act like Jesus wants us to act, that brings God glory. And so we're to seek God's glory. The scripture says this in several places. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 31, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body of the church, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And over in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, it says, But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the, am the Lord which exercise love and kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So glory in the Lord. Let him be glorified. Our church doesn't deserve the glory. If God doesn't work in this church and we begin to grow and we fill this building and we move up to our new property and build a brand new building and things are going great, we do not deserve any glory whatsoever. It all be because of God. Our plans do not deserve glory. Our tradition doesn't deserve glory. Our accomplishments accomplishments do not deserve glory. Only Jesus deserves glory. Jesus said this, without me, ye can do nothing. So anything we accomplish for the Lord, it should be for his glory. He says, with one mind and one's mouth, glorify God. 
When it comes to God's, God's glory, we should all, all agree. With one mind, that's everybody. That's the weak and the strong. With one mind and one, one mouth, we should bring glory to God. Our petty differences are nothing compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. He's more important than, it, than your opinion. He is more important than something you've always, uh, you know, you always want to do something a certain way and somebody else does it a different way. Uh, the Lord's more important than that. And so God's glory is the most important thing. So we're to, we're to live, serve together by showing God's heart and seeking God's honor. And then there's one last thing. It's in verses 4 and 13, and that is stand in God's hope. We're to stand in God's hope. I mean, so many times in local churches, not this one, but I've seen it in other churches and heard about it, so many times that people who make a stand for certain things that they think is important, there's really no scripture attached to it. It's all because of them. It's all because of their glory. It's all because of people wanting them to, wanting to agree with them. And it's all about them. It's not about the Lord. And they don't stand in the hope that we, we, we should stand in. But the Bible says we, should, we stand in hope. Look at verse 4. He says this, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comforts of the Scripture might have hope. Hope. What is hope? Hope is something that we know is true and we look forward to it with anticipation because God has promised it. That's Bible hope. And so the fact that we're going to be with the Lord someday, that's hope. The fact that we're going to have new bodies someday, that's hope. The fact that we're going to see Jesus because he's going to return, that's the blessed hope, the Lord's return. And that's very important to us. Many church problems are the result of people wanting to stand in their victory. You know, I won. I got it my way. And, uh, but our victories are often self-advancing. Our victories are short-lived, and our victories, victories many times are church-defeating. And it hurts the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we press for victory in our lives on trivial matters, we should, we should consider this. If you fight for something that's not really that important, no, no scripture attached to it, and in a local church, I've seen this happen. I've heard of it happening. And that people will have an argument about something that maybe it's the color of the church or the color of the paint. Or I knew one church, it was because of a picture hanging back here. It hung there for years and years and years, and it was a picture of Jesus. And a new pastor came, and he thought, that's not right. They're idolizing that picture. And so once before one Sunday morning, he took it down. And he had all kinds of people griping to him because he took that picture down. It proved what that picture meant to them. Oh, they endeared that picture because it was a picture of Jesus. Of course, it wasn't. We don't have any pictures of Jesus. <laughs> Thank the Lord we don't. They'd be worshiping it. But uh, we don't have any pictures of Jesus. man's imagination, what he might have looked like. But it caused a lot of problems. And he talked to me about it. He says, people are all upset with me because I took that picture down. Well... If they had won, and the pastor said, all right, I'll put the picture back up, they would have said, we won. We got our way. He gave in to us. I remember being said to me one time, we've been here for years. You just came. (laughs) 
You know, in other words, do what we say. Uh, and that's not right. <laughs> that's not right. And so we'll stand in our victory. But what we should do is think this. If we just got our victory over something that the Scripture doesn't speak about, just a personal preference or something like that, and we're causing trouble in a local church, after I win the victory, will I be able to say, I can't wait to see Jesus? <laughs> after you win that victory, can you say, I can't wait to see Jesus? If we're honest, some of these so-called victories that people win after the winning that victory, if they're honest, they wouldn't want to see Jesus right then because he knows that they know, they know that he knows their heart and why they did it. And the Lord says, uh, I'm not pleased with that. You're to do all things that bring glory to the Lord. Now, he mentions hope three times in verse 4 and also verse 13. And this hope might very well be the hope of the Lord's return. Let's read in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. It says this, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye, may be, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises, for when God, when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, uh, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply and supply thee. And so after he had patiently endured and obtained the promise, for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto, them, unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that in, by two immutable things in which it was possible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, notice this, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner has entered even, even Jesus, made in the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is ascended into heaven, and he's there. He's our hope, and our hope is anchored within the veil because that's where Jesus is, and we know we're going to be with him someday. He has promised it, so that's our hope, and we stand in that hope. And so if you're faced with something and it's your way or the other guy's way, just ask the question, what's your hope? Is your hope a victory in this situation, or is your hope that you're going to see the Lord? Stand in that hope. Be willing to just... Give in a little bit, you know. Be sympathetic with the other person. Talk with them about it and, and uh, try to help them and, and be willing to please them and not yourself because you know the hope you have is not something that's going to happen here. It's something you're guaranteed is going to happen there. And so you stand in hope because the Lord Jesus has promised you. Well, today we live in a, an age that is given to all kinds of things that would make division in a church if it was entered into the church. I want to show you this as we close in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, right after 2 Timothy. And the Lord describes the age we live in. He says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. This is before we got saved. We were foolish, disobedient, 
deceived, serving divers' lust, that means our own desires and pleasures, living in malice and envy, and then notice these last two things, hateful and hating one another. That's the world. That's the way they are before they got saved. Before you were saved, you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and and hating one another. And I think the Lord says this, not in the church. (laughs) That shouldn't be us. We should love one another. We should give in to one another. We should be trying to please one another. We should be trying to edify one another. We should be helpful one another. We should receive one another. We shouldn't in any way be like we were before we got saved. But how are we supposed to be? Well, look back in chapter 2 of Titus, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, say no to sin, and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that, we might, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. What kind of people are we to be as Christians? We're to people, be people zealous of good works, doing good for each other, doing good things. We're to be zealous of good works. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, And this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And then verse 9, avoid foolish questions and genealogies, contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Avoid the arguments. (laughs) Avoid that. You remember the Lord tells us, I think it's in Philippians, uh, we're not to murmur. We're not to complain. We're not to be a murmuring people. And in verse 14, he says this, And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. We are to be people who are God's people, who act like God, who trust the Lord, serve the Lord, treat each other right. Because the Lord says this in, in John three thirteen verse 35, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So the message this morning is to Christians, to our church. And that is we should in no way allow divisions to come in. Because if we do that, it, it, bring, it doesn't bring glory to God. It doesn't help the person who needs help. So we're to be those who love one another and are, are what God wants us to be so that our church will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our hope is steadfast. We're going to be in heaven someday. We don't have to worry about that if we know Jesus. And so let's not bicker about unessential things. Let's serve the Lord together. Let's pray. Father, thank you today. In this short passage that you remind us of your heart and how you deserve the glory and how we have a hope that's steadfast and sure and we have to stand in that hope. Help us always to do that, Lord. And I pray that you would spare this church from any uh, problems that would come in and defeat. Keep us strong and together and serving you. And may we see many people trust Jesus as their saviors because they hear the gospel, they believe it,
but also because they see our lives and want to be like we are, people who've been changed by the Lord. Thank you for Jesus' sake, we pray.